This is Examine Sport, a podcast of the Sports Ethicist. I am your host, Sean Klein. Each episode of Examine Sport focuses on an argument or concept in the philosophy of sport literature. We will look at classic, discipline-defining articles, exciting, newly published works, and dig deep for important but not as well-known papers. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all the shows, along with links and related information, at sportsethicist.com. This is part two of a two-part series on J.S. Russell's 1999 paper, Our Rules All an Umpire Has to Work With in which Russell presents the framework for a theory of sports adjudication through a comparison with Ronald Dworkin's legal philosophy. In the first part, we looked at Russell's main goal in the paper, to explore the nature and quote, the nature and limits of umpires' discretion in interpreting and applying the rules of the game they adjudicate, end quote. We then looked at Several hard cases that Russell argues show how ambiguity is inevitable in officiating, and thus there is a need both for umpire discretion and a theory of adjudication to guide that discretion. And we ended by discussing his four principles of sport adjudication. These are, one, rules should be interpreted in such a manner that the excellences embodied in achieving the losery goal of the game are not undermined but are maintained and fostered. Two, rules should be interpreted to achieve an appropriate competitive balance. Three, rules should be interpreted according to the principles of fair play and sportsmanship. Lastly, rules should be interpreted to preserve the good conduct of games. Now for more on these principles of sport adjudication, check out part one as well as Russell's paper, of course. Now, a central figure, uh, feature of Dworkin's approach to legal philosophy is integrity. The virtue of integrity plays several key roles in his legal philosophy. It is the overarching guide for interpretation. The law strives to be a co- coherent, integrated whole, to speak as though the law is one voice. The judge interprets the rules so that his or her ruling is part of this integrated whole. Interpretation is guided then by some, quote, single comprehensive vision of justice, end quote. This vision is part of what allows the judge to interpret the rules and make rulings that are part of the integrated whole of the law. The integrity of law is both the guide and the goal of the judge. He or she interprets the law guided by a conception of the law as an integrated whole striving for the comprehensive ideal of justice. And the judge interprets the law with the goal of maintaining and extending this integrated whole. Russell extends his parallel of sport to law by arguing that there is a parallel for the integrity of law with sport adjudication. Sport, possibly even more so than law, has a comprehensive vision. Quote, it seems quite within our grasp to extract some coherent and principled view of the sporting games in which we participate, end quote. This is because, quote, the basic idea of a game and of its particular goals tend to be relatively clear and well-defined, end quote. And moreover, there is less controversy in sport than in law stemming from the fundamental differences within societies regarding conceptions of morality and justice. 
sport officials, like the judges in Jorkin's view of law, must be guided by their best understanding of the game, its excellences and losery goals. On Russell's view, to maintain and foster the integrity of the game, the umpire's discretion needs to be guided by this understanding of the game while making sure their rulings both fit with and extend the game's excellences and goals. Now, while most of the cases Russell has been dealing with to this point were relatively uncommon, cases where the rules were silent or ambiguous uh, in regard to some action in the game that was unanticipated or infrequent. After all, it's not all that often that a player throws his glove at a ball in order to field it. But what about cases that are more frequent? Indeed, happen in every game. These are cases where, quote, umpires systematically ignore or modify certain rules, end quote. Now, there are many examples of these sorts of cases. In baseball, the changing size of the strike zone over the years. In the NHL, certain kinds of obstructions that are not called as frequently as they seem to occur. In the NFL, it is well understood that holding could be called on nearly every play, and similarly with fouls in the NBA, by the rules on the books, many more fouls ought to be called than actually are. All these are cases of officials systematically ignoring and modifying the rules. So can Russell's account, quote, explain or justify such practices or say when they have gone too far? Now, Russell thinks so. He thinks it can, quote, explain this behavior of umpires and help to guide it. He says that, quote, we tolerate or may even expect or require systematic disregard or modification of certain rules to the extent that it usually helps to create the context for the exercise of sport-related excellences. The rules are imperfect and imprecise, and the umpires exercise discretion to adjust the rules of the game to make sure the game better meets its losery goals. Russell uses the strike zone in baseball to illustrate this. As pitching has evolved and improved, if umpires enforced the strike zone as defined in the rules, the opportunity for hitting and fielding would be greatly reduced. The losery goals and their related excellences would thus be diminished and the game worse. Russell argues, quote, it is a matter of making sure that the skills that are contemplated by the game actually have a genuine chance to be exercised and play a role in the game. End quote. Another reason offered for disregarding certain rules is that calling each interference or penalty disrupts the flow or rhythm and undermines the sort of competitive opportunities that provide for excellences of the game. The NFL and the NBA would be unwatchable and boring to play if penalties and fouls were called in every play. And if the players changed the way they play to avoid these frequent penalties, the game would probably be equally boring. So as the games are played, evolve, and develop, the proper competitive balance and context for achieving the losery goals evolves as well, requiring, Russell argues, the umpire to have the discretionary power to work out the appropriate solutions, and the best way, Russell claims, to find the most workable solutions is in the context of the game itself. Russell lastly turns to answer objections to the idea that umpires need greater discretion. So we're going to go through these. The first is that giving that uh, this discretion gives umpires too big a role. So there's a commonly held idea that the best officiated games 
are ones where the umpires least noticed. We want the umpires to let them play. We want umpires play not we don't want umpires playing a role in determining the victor. We want the game decided on the field. Giving refs greater discretion would mean giving them too big a role in games. Russell argues, however, that umpires are inevitably in the spotlight. They impact the game no matter what. Not making certain calls is as much determining the outcome of the game as making those calls. The umpires, when guided by the adjudication principles, should be able to use their discretion for the goal of preserving the integrity of the game. Russell argues that this is unlikely to increase officiating controversy. The controversial and memorable cases are the ones that umps get wrong, regardless of the use of discretion. When the discretion is used wisely and preserves the integrity of the game, there is unlikely to be great controversy. The second objection is that greater discretion for the umpires would undermine the authority of those who write the rules. The idea here is that if we allow umpire discretion, it's going to undermine the authority of the rules. It's going to place the authority with the umpire instead of the rule makers. However, Russell argues that the rule writers need to acknowledge that discretion is inevitable and that their rules won't be perfectly definitive. This, he hopes, will encourage intelligent, intelligent discourse of the rules and aims of the sport. This approach, more than pretending like the rules are definitive, does a better job, according to Russell, of reinforcing the authority of the rules and the rule makers. Next is the idea that umpire discretion is going to undermine the predictability of the games. The concern here is that if we allow discretion, it's going to be harder to predict what is required to play the game. Russell counters that the nature of the cases where discretion is most needed is, is that they already are hard to predict or anticipate. This reinforces the need to have an approach to deal with these cases in a way that fits with the aims and purposes of the game. In, along similar lines, there's a concern that umpire discretion is going to interfere with the efficient conduct of games. Here, the concern is that umpires will be interrupting the flow and rhythm of the games, looking for cases to exercise their discretion. Russell argues that these cases arise, the cases uh, needing discretion arise naturally enough and so that umpires don't need to and really won't want to go looking for them. The next uh, is that a concern that umpires uh, won't be able to exercise their discretion wisely, right? The discretion required by umpire requires an understanding of the rules, the aims of the game, and the wisdom to balance these properly. And Russell argues that this is, quote, within the competence of most reasonably well-trained umpires. These are qualities we should expect umpires to have. Certainly, umpires at the highest level of the games should have these sorts of qualities. The last objection is that the ideology of games is an intelligent lie. The idea in this last objection is that even though the ideology of games is false, it's better if we just pretend as, as, as if it is correct. Umpires will exercise discretion when they must, but still speak as if this fits with the ideology of games, with the idea that the rules are definitive and that no discretion was actually being exercised. Russell says that this supposes, quote, some practical indirect value in efficiency and fairness to retaining the ideology, even if it is false. 
the burden for showing this value is on those who think this intelligent lie has such value. Lies are generally bad, and so if they are to be justified, the burden is on those who want to make an exception. And Russell gives two reasons why he doesn't think that burden can be met. First, it misses opportunities for moral education about the nature of games and the nature of rule-governed institutions more generally. And then, secondly, it would also undermine the authority and respect for umpires and games. Requiring umpires to speak as if they don't exercise discretion while they are doing exactly that both interferes with their ability to do their job well and makes it harder to take them seriously when they are doing their job. It's better, argues Russell, to do away with the ideology of games and work towards a better understanding of games and the role of umpires. If we had a better understanding of discretion, its limits and purposes, there would be less worry about empire discretion and the, go and the games themselves, argues Russell, would be better. Thank you for listening to Examine Sport. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all the shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. Please also consider rating the show on iTunes, liking it on YouTube, and sharing on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. You can email the show, sportsethicist, at gmail.com.